Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. Hey, Justin. Welcome to Whiskey and Tea. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Um, So recently, this week, I had a crazy thought that maybe we could compromise. And I thought, and so, and compromise brought me back to thinking about the compromises prior to the Civil War and how inevitably... We got divorced, but there was a lot of band-aids applied to the problem before it finally broke up. So um, I reached out to you because you are, you know, I realize you're you're up north, but you're from the south and you understand uh, all the implications of this stuff. Um, And I thought it would be cool to work out if we even could compromise. And if we can compromise, what does it look like? Um, so I'll start with like some brief history and we'll uh, and we'll go from there. So the Missouri Compromise of 1820 um, was where the 3630 line came from, better known as the Mason-Dixon line. And that is where basically the compromise was slavery will only be allowed in the states to the south of the line and all the states above the line will be free. Um, But see, that became a problem in Western expansion. So before we get there, before we get to Western expansion, we'll talk about the Missouri Compromise and the implications of that. Um, Basically drew a line for agriculture, you know, for, for, the South, this is where you this is where you stop and never really gave the opportunity to say, you know, it was always this is where this is where you end. And as expansion went on, you know, they demanded, you know, that they have more land too. You know, they have every right to it as well. But and kind of a piece of that compromise going forward was whether it was uh explicitly uh, a thing or not was that from that point, because Missouri would have uh, Missouri could have potentially been like a tipping point that really pushed power one way or the other. So, kind of what happens from that point forward is every time you get a state that is uh, that is brought into the union that is a free state to the north of that line, you also roughly at the same time you get a a state south of that south of that line so it they maintain uh they do a good job during this kind of weird period of american history 
of maintaining this really delicate balance of not letting either the North or the South get more power in a uh, delegate type of a way as far as the state or, you know, the House and the Senate go. So it, it this is a, you know, it's a compromise in that it maintains that balance where uh, neither side is going to overrun uh, overrun the U.S. government and say we're going to have our way. It one way or the it, other, all the way, right? Which is the way, which is the way the government was intended to work. Like it's supposed, government is supposed to exist in a gridlock that doesn't accomplish anything. So, so they maintain the, the you know the correct uh, iteration of how government is supposed to function in that it's not supposed to fucking function. Yes. Which is kind of, which is funny that in today's time, when we talk about compromise, we talk about, we think of one side getting more than the other, and you end up, you know, really both sides end up losing more or less. Um, but then the, the, then the respective sides come out and say, you know, they, they uh, propagandize it as to how they won, and they won something. Um, but yeah, it ended up being a gridlock of government. And like you said, that's okay. And then that's why, you know, for 15 years, or I think over, maybe you're better than me, but that, you know, there was no state admitted to the union. And uh, we had gone to war with Mexico, you know, we went to war with Mexico and we got all this land and this territory and people were you know fighting over it as to to keep the balance of power to keep the you know to keep the representation as equal as possible i guess to make sure that if the south owned the senate that the north owned the house and that nothing could ever get done and like you said uh you know that's how it's supposed to work (laughs) <laughs> and so it's like it's it really was uh you know, who uh, i think who wrote the missouri compromise was it henry clay yeah it was, was uh, a com- combination yeah. and um man talk about i just don't think that we have a henry clay like i don't think that we have someone that could even come up with this thing that could even have the political I don't know, King Solomon wherewithal to be able to come up with this and then get everybody on board to be civil. And I just don't even think that could happen. See, I don't want to go into prescribing the, uh, the, the ills of the country, but whereas at one point in, in history, our politicians were actually the intelligent class. Like they were the educated, uh, wealthy like they were the they were the people who had actual power and influence and knew what was going on and had a vested interest in not just in politics working for them but they had a vested interest in economics and the country working positively for everybody because they were actually businessmen they were actually invested in the country itself what we have now with our political class in today's society is they have a complete divorce from all of that except where corporate interests are padding their pockets. And they have no benefit to the the economy or anything else being good. The only thing that benefits uh, them is 
who's putting the most money in their pocket so that they vote in the correct way. So, and they're, and they're not, we don't have a intellectual class in Washington. We have people who are willing to get dirty and say and do the right thing and um, in, to ensure that they maintain the power. It's not about how smart you are or what you know. It's about who you know and who you're willing to blow, basically. Absolutely. Um, and you're right. And that's that's definitely, to me, one of the biggest differences that, that just stood out to me was when you read what these men wrote and when you, you know, dig down into it and the implications of literally every sentence in these speeches and in today's world you know if it can't fit in 240 characters then it, it doesn't matter and you can give a speech all you want uh no one cares no one watches c-span and no one's ever going to read it um yeah so we have completely degraded our, you know, our, our political class. So yeah, I don't think that there is a single person, not a Thomas Massey, not a Rand Paul. I don't think that there is anyone that could write this and then sell it to both sides, um, which is part of legislation <laughs> to sell it to both sides. Uh, they love that bipartisan uh, label, right? Uh, it's a bipartisan bill. No one's, if it's bipartisan, it doesn't do anything for you, right? <laughs> it has nothing to do with you. And so this was actually a true, what a bipartisan piece of legislation looks like. Where both sides thing, lose. What? Sorry. Yeah, I would say the interesting thing about these compromises as we go through them with the, the Compromise of 1820 and then the, the tariffs in uh, 32 and 33 uh, is they weren't the votes didn't go down party line so much as they went down uh, the, the lines of ideology and principle and like what these people uh, saw as being important to where they lived. So, so it, like it was this, these, these legitimately were bipartisan in that they didn't, they didn't play to Democrats or Whigs uh, at the time. They played to, what the important issues were for these uh, congressmen for where they came from. So it, it was a, these were very well, uh, well construed in that manner. And the fact that a lot of them passed by relatively narrow margins should tell you that, you know, even at that time, like shit was uh, pretty tight and pretty hot. Like they're, they're, no matter what the compromises were, they weren't going to be long lived. So like all of this is kind of kicking the can down the road, but the fact that they had the wherewithal to, to kick the can and not just blow it up right off the bat is, you know, there were people who had a legitimate vested interest in making sure that the union was maintained and that it was done in a, at least moderately healthy way. Uh, and, and that was, you know, which that, that was kind of the theme up until the 1840s uh, when, when things kind of, went to shit, but you know, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to it that. Was, it, it was, it's interesting to, to point out though, the different generations that come about from 1820 to 18, we'll call it 1855, you know, because they pulled, they pulled old uh, clay out of retirement to write the compromise of 1850 because they didn't have anyone that could do it or they didn't think they had anyone that could do it. So, I think it's really interesting to see, like at some point, 
you know, it, it changes. It, at some point it flips and like it never goes back. And even through uh, war, through reconstruction, it never went back to the way it was at the compromise of 1820, you know? And like you said, these people had a vested interest in making sure that America stayed together and money involved, lots of it. And, and it's interesting that the next generation of so say, you know, businessmen, they, they didn't, they didn't do the same thing, you know, they didn't follow. And so I, I found that really interesting that um, within one generation, the whole thing flipped. Um, so yeah, so we go from 1820 and um, they ended up in 1820 admitting, what, what was it, Maine and Missouri. So then of course, Maine comes in free, Missouri comes in. But like you said, Missouri hotly contested. Uh, it was it was close. Um, but yeah, uh, and then so another interesting, another yeah, interesting no. point, another interesting point to the Compromise of 1820 uh, was it was also kind of a dig at the bureaucracy itself, uh, because Washington D.C. was a massive hotbed for slave trade. That was where they were bought and sold. So this really, this really kind of, uh, like I said, it was it was an impressive dig in that it it put the focus solely on. DC in that you claim to be in favor of freedom. You know, there was, because there was a lot of political pressure at that time like for ending slavery. So it really put the focus on Washington DC that you claim to be for freeing slaves and all of this. And yet quite possibly, and maybe not even arguably the number one place for slave trade was in Washington DC. So you know, it, it really, it really put a spotlight on them and forced, if I remember correctly, uh, at that point, it also forced Washington, D.C. to stop conducting slave, slave yeah. sale. So yeah. like, it, it's a, uh, there was, there was a lot more to the compromise than just, you know, just uh, Maine and Missouri. And, and it really kind of changed uh the way that thing that, that slavery was conducted directly from the capital and uh obviously that's a good thing like historically speaking but at the time it was it was the south kind of uh taking away a money maker for the people who most strongly opposed what they did and how they did it so, because, and this is something that just really sucks about modern history or the way, mo the way history is taught in our modern culture is that like people don't realize that Maryland had one of the largest slave populations in the United States at the time of the civil war. Like, like the North, the, the North did not, not have slaves. <laughs> like that, that's not, that's not the way this worked. <laughs> and like the South is demonized for slavery because of secession and, and the civil war, but it didn't like slavery didn't stop at the Mason Dixon line. No. It, in fact, even after this compromise, like slavery was not illegal in the North. Delaware, still Delaware had slavery. 
There's right. always like that. There's always like that one little like when they when they highlight all the slave states. There's always if you look real close. There's always that one little highlighted, highlighted, highlighted state <laughs> that also has slavery. Right, and that, that, like that's something that that gets glossed <laughs> over in modern in the modern teaching of history is this compromise. Uh, it served the purpose of preventing outright slave states from being included in the union without whether it was ex explicitly made a deal or not without there also being the same for free states and vice versa so like but none of this did anything to end slavery none of it even really uh stymied slavery i don't, I don't even think it stopped slave sales in those northern states they were there Right. It still happened. It it ended slave. It ended the slave trade in Washington, D.C. itself. But I'm pretty sure the northern states still both had slaves and bought and sold slaves. It just was not. Uh, it wasn't as prevalent of a thing as it was in the South, I guess, would be the best way to put it. But it, it, it was still there. And like if if slaves escaped from the South into the North, then U.S. Marshals would return them <laughs> like they were they were uh under legal order if they were caught in the north to return them so it really didn't like a lot of this uh a lot of this stuff that was supposed to be so uh pro-freedom that happens throughout this part of history that really didn't that that super pro freedom side of it. it really didn't exist like it was uh there was a lot of posturing more than more than anything which i mean that's the way modern government is too like a lot of what they do and talk about is posturing and and doesn't actually uh directly apply to what what they mean or what they uh intend so so you get to see a lot of that uh especially as we go through these because as you go through the treaties uh or the uh the the tariff compromises and stuff leading up to the civil war. Like a lot of this stuff is um, what we're going to do to keep people happy and to put on a good show while we do completely other stuff in the background. So carry on. Yeah. Uh, agree to everything you just said. Uh, I always thought that it was interesting. Like I said at the beginning, like it's all propaganda as a compromise. It's all propagandized. Like this is we won and they lost or whatever. And that's how they that's how they did D.C. And like you said, they that didn't stop it from happening. It just stopped it from there. And um, but we don't we don't talk about that part because uh, that would that would shine the winners, the propagandizers in a bad light. <laughs> so we don't, we don't, we don't get to do that. Um, so we go from 1820 to 
put a large tax on those products because they, the North, started to produce them themselves and they wanted more people to buy from them. But the import tax really affected the South because if Britain can't buy cotton, then we can't afford the import tax and we need to keep business with Britain. So the South is mad. <laughs> they don't like it. And then four, yeah, four years later, 1832, they have the tariffs of 1832. And that was basically a compromise, uh, which no one won and no one liked it. Uh, it just lowered it. It just lowered the tax from like an astronomical amount to half of that astronomical amount. And it still made it hard on the South to do anything. Um, and, and, and their economy was wrecked for four years as a result of all this. And then the biggest part, the response to all this, the response and the reason why you have the tariffs of 1833, um, or 3233, is because South Carolina, port state, big into, you know, imports and exports. Uh, was kicked in the nuts so hard, so fast. You think you think it's bad here now? South Carolina, the whole South, but South Carolina, like when you look at the numbers of like how fast their economy just shot down, it's insane. I mean, it truly, it's amazing that the government that was supposed to be ruling over them did it to them. And, yeah, so for some context yeah. on, on talking about the tariffs and everything and kind of where they, that all came from, like you were saying. So at this point in history, the North is really starting to pick up manufacturing wise, especially New York, Philadelphia, like the big city areas, and they're producing stuff. They are not able to produce stuff super uh, efficiently or cost effectively, but they're doing it. And so because these are large population centers and they have a lot of influence in the federal government, much like today, uh, they start pushing that, hey, we've got to stop allowing the easy import of all of these goods from overseas when we can make this stuff here and we need to prop up our own markets so that we can actually start making money off of this stuff. Well, the problem with that is the, the reason that they had to pump up these tariffs on all of these goods is because the South could actually bring that stuff in and, and distribute it across the South cheaper than what they could have it brought in from the north because they already had the trade going with all of the agricultural supplies going to Europe and these other countries. So you've got the stuff that they need coming in and the stuff, the agricultural side of stuff going out, you have good flow of trade. The north wants to start moving stuff south, which costs more money. So the south is getting like, it's not cost effective for the southern states to buy stuff from the northern states when they can get it cheaper and easier from overseas. So then you have the tariffs. Well, the tariffs basically, like you said, they wreck South, uh, South Carolina's economy because now the fees that, the, that they're being charged for all of this stuff coming in are jacking the prices up on the stuff being imported, but it's no cheaper to get it from the north. So you're getting fucked 
on both sides of, of the supply side of what you need. Plus, because of the tariffs, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. The, the European countries that are buying their grains and cotton and, you know, all the things that they need that are coming from the South, they're also levying or tariffs on them in return. So now they're making less money and having to spend more money. It, like, it, this isn't a fucking rocket science. Like, any, any half-ass intelligent person who knows just, you know, fingers and toes math should be able to figure this out. But, you know, when you go to uh, relying on our federal government to understand basic numbers, uh, you're going to be pretty well fucked. So, so yeah, take it on with the, the tariffs of 32 and 33 and kind of what that compromise led to, I guess, would be the. Yeah, the big the, the big part. So yeah. uh, 28 Calhoun. This is fun. Calhoun was vice president. John C. Calhoun. Y'all know that name. Everybody knows that name. OK. John C. Calhoun was vice president and he left his post. He quit his job. He was like, no, you're not going to fuck over my home state like that. No way. I'm out. And he left. So, yeah. So I thought that was that was crazy. Like he was so principled that like he was like, no, screw this. I can't represent you people because you don't represent me. Um, so uh, like you said, like uh, Justin just said, so. The South is getting double fucked by this whole, by the shindig, okay? And so they call old uh, John Quincy Adams out of the bed, I'm pretty sure, to come right for eighteen the tariffs of 1832, which were in response to South Carolina basically deciding our, this beautiful beautiful verb, nullifying the federal government's tariffs in the boundary of South Carolina and said, we're not gonna, we're just not, we're just not. And, you know, of course, then there's threats of federal military militias coming down to South Carolina and South Carolina just is like, okay, man, we can do this all day. We'll play this chicken all day long. We are not going to honor these tariffs, period, done. So then, like I said, they called old John Quincy Adams out of bed to come write this because at this point, we're 12 years away from 1820. That new generation of the political class is in power and they don't know what to do. They literally don't know what to do. They, <laughs> it's, it's so fun. So they get this old guy to come out. And basically, like I said, they reduce the tariffs from an astronomical amount to half. An astronomical amount on all the same stuff. There was no stuff like, hey, we're only going to keep it on this. Um, no, it was just basically they just redid the numbers. And the South hated it. The North hated it. No one was happy. So in this compromise, no one, there was no, everyone was just blaming. It's like today, they're just blaming each other for all the things they lost. Um, so Everything, but South Carolina says, okay, okay, we'll agree to that. We'll do that part. We'll do that. And then they call off the National Guard and the militias and the and and all the tanks that they were going to send down to these people. That's what it sounds like when you read the news, like the, the, the ships that they had ready to go down is so funny. So you, uh, so they repeal their nullification ordinance 
1833. But that was the first time that South Carolina was trying to get bucked over uh, some some bullshit, right? And and I think it's so crazy. Something we take for granted, right? Taxes. We take taxes being taxed for granted. Um, it's just it's just just what we do. It's just what happens. These people were like, no, no. So what would happen? What would happen if, um, uh, you know, a state today just said no, said no. I mean, I realized that everyone would tell me, well, they are telling them no, because they're not implementing the mandate. Well, it's a mandate. They don't have to implement a mandate. It's not a law. They can they can stand up on their podiums and act all hard or whatever. But the reality is, is like that's not a law. And a federal mandate is like a strong suggestion. So. Um, telling the federal government no to a mandate that is not <laughs> that is not a law <laughs> is not. Heroism. It's just you being a good governor of people you represent that you know don't want it. But that doesn't make you, like, these people, they said, come at me, bro. Come at me. We don't care. We're not doing it. So I just, uh, I thought that, like, what, 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 what would happen? Would they send, you know, would the National Guard come in? Would they, you know? In, like, in modern, in, in modern times? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know that the I don't know that they have the uh, support to do that legitimately. Uh, like I think they might talk it up. I think they might send some, but I don't know how much of that some would actually show up. Um, like I think for our military personnel, it's one thing to be dropped in a foreign country that you have absolutely no interest in whatsoever and to be told point and shoot. It's a completely other thing to be dropped in, um, in your own country and told the same thing. Uh, granted, if the Civil War is any uh, indication, you have more than more than a healthy supply of psychopaths who are more than willing to do that sort of thing and atrocities far beyond just the point and shoot side of things. So is it possible? Maybe, but I do think uh, looking at modern military, there's a lot more of a uh, patriotic idealism that might side more with, the states that are the most likely to be uh, less than cooperative with some of this stuff. So like the places that these people would be getting deployed would probably be places that they would have a relatively high level of uh, affinity for, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. And so, um, so, so you were on, we were on the compromise of 33, which kind of got things to calm down. And if you want to, if you want to get into some of the nuts and bolts, yes, please. So, Help me. so what com what the compromise of thirty three did? Uh, originally, they get hit with a twenty percent tax on all uh, a twenty 
20% tariff on, you know, everything coming in. Obviously, that's going to pretty much wreck the South Carolina and Southern economy right off the bat. Uh, so what the compromise of uh, 1933 or 1833 does is it cuts that tax in half or it cuts that tariff in half. And it will incrementally increase over the next nine years, I think it is, up to 1842. It will incrementally increase every year until 1842, at which point it returns to, you know, it will have ramped itself back up to the original 20%. So that gives them time to, you know, you're not getting hit with it all at once. You got time to adjust. Seems fair, right? I mean, if it's if it's going to happen, let's have it happen. Over a 10-year period, instead of all at once, give us time to, to make adjustments. It it's, a, it's mutually beneficial for both sides while also not really, or, or also being bad for both sides. So, you know, it's it's a compromise. Everybody wins, everybody loses. That's 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 the nature of a compromise. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it wasn't great for the North because they still had to compete, but it's, you know, not great for the South because they're still having to have higher costs on everything. Um, so it also there were also loopholes in the 33 um, compromise. There were certain goods that would come in tar completely tariff free uh, stuff. And, and it was like necessary stuff. So there were there were some benefits to it. And and, and at the same time, those uh, benefits actually applied for the north as well, because it was like manufacturing type goods, things that they would need to actually do the uh, the manufacturing stuff that they were doing in the north. So so there were things that were strategically left out of these tariffs that uh, made it a little more amenable to all sides involved. But then the problem that you have is, which I'm sure you're about to get to this, but the problem that you really have is that at the end of this in 1842, when it's supposed to return to you know the original 20%, they ramp it up to 40 and just kick everybody straight in the fucking teeth. And so, so this is what really escalates things up to 1850, uh, which arguably by the time you hit this, the compromise of 1850, like there, there's no compromise. Like you've already seen what compromise gets you. Uh, so, so I would argue that from 1842 forward, uh, secession and, I don't think civil war is uh, necessarily a foregone conclusion, but secession most definitely is. Like, you've been betrayed. You, you know, fuck me once, shame on you. Fuck me twice, shame on me. And and the South had kind of hit that point in 1842 when, like, when the, the tariff goes from 20 to 40, like, they're they're not even holding up to the compromise that they had made. Like they're, they're completely, they're completely going back on it and then doubling it. Uh, that, that's probably the, the breaking point for the country. But, but yeah, I mean, but like taking it from 42 going forward, like we can kind of look at what they, what they tried to do from that point on. Uh, Cause it, like you said, I mean, they did bring people out of the woodworks to, to try to uh, maintain peace and, Keep things together. Uh, I just don't think that at that point, I think the damage had been done. I uh, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, that 
and then you fast forward uh, to 10 years and uh, you know, then it's, then it's, uh, it's worse. It's worse. <laughs> so, and in fact, during this time, that's whenever you see there was uh, conventions in um, Tennessee. I think they tried to plan one in Louisiana. They had them in Georgia. They were having conventions to see if they had the state support to secede. You know, at this point, it's it's not just a murmur in D.C. It's it's a real thing. Um, and people are done and they there are states that really want to mimic South Carolina. But then they're also torn because there's a lot of national pride you know there is still that like you have that this before the generational break where the kids that come up you know i say kids you know the 20 and 30 year olds that come up in this time that are becoming adults they remember all their life you know the growing up a for a 40 percent tariff and what that did to their family and knowing what their, you know, potentially their cousins up north or whatever could do, you know, could get it for. And um, you know, that that's whenever that generational break of, you know, I, I have nothing in common with these people. I don't want anything to do with these people. You guys can have your you can you can have your whatever. I don't want to put any part of it anymore. So um what goes what goes what goes next? Because my next thing is 1846. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so 1846, uh, David Wilmot, the Democrat from Pennsylvania. You guys remember his name because he wrote the Wilmot Proviso. Um, basically, a doctrine that said there should be no slavery in Western territories. Period. Well, you can imagine how well that went over. Uh, it died. It died on the House floor. It did not go forward. Um, but it was very, it was a marketed moment when someone stood up and said slavery should not extend into the new Western territories. No one had ever gotten up and just said that. Up until this point, it's like, well, you guys can have your slavery and we're going to have this and then we're going to, we can just, we're just going to work it out. This is the first time that someone said no. Yeah, they were going to maintain, uh, you know, the one for one kind of thing. Like nobody, I, I don't guess anybody had, maybe nobody had put Western expansion into consideration that far out. Uh, because, you know, at that point, the only Western expansion you really had was Texas. And uh, Texas was, <laughs> Texas was expanding itself. Texas, <laughs> like, there wasn't a an expansion of other states. There was an expansion of Texas as a state. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about adding states because Texas is just doing its thing and growing itself. So you're not you're not adding new territories. You're not adding new states. You're just you know you're adding landmass in that Texas was growing. Uh, so so this is you know this is getting towards the gold rush and. And more Western expansion, because, you know, once they got past uh, past the Mississippi into Missouri, there was further push into the West. And, and I, I might be wrong. Uh, I thought it was sometime 
during the 1820s, 1830s was when Lewis and Clark kind of made their trek across the northern part of the country. I, I could be wrong on that. It yeah. might have been, it yeah. might have been earlier than that, but still, right. I mean, it's opening it up. Like, uh, even if even if I'm off by a, a decade or so, uh, that's happening roughly around these same time frame. So, so the western half of the country is really starting to open up. So, I mean, this Wilmot dude, I mean, he's pretty sharp. Obviously, he had the uh, the wherewithal to see that Western expansion is going to happen. It's it's an inevitability, and that means more states will come in. So, and if you're on the uh, anti-slave side of things, then it makes sense to try to get something on the books, especially if at the time uh, there is kind of, I don't want to say anti-Southern sentiment within Washington, D.C., but there's kind of an anti-Southern sentiment within Washington, D.C. So, you know, you have an opportunity to uh, put something on the books that says there won't be any more slave states. I mean, it, it, it was uh, not unintelligent of him to try that. And like you said, it died. Uh, it died every time it went. It, it made it out of the House twice. But every time it hit the Senate, every time it hit the Senate, it died in the Senate. So, you know, it didn't uh, it did not have. And that's actually one of the things that it, it wasn't a uh, bipartisan thing. It was more of a uh, uh, regional thing like. Uh, it didn't split, but on party lines, which was uh, another interesting uh, that that time of the that time of the country was probably le- the least partisan of of uh, history and more on regionality. Uh, so yeah, I mean you, you know this is a it's an interesting provision that he tried to put forward. Um, the f- fact that it died probably did not help with the anti-Southern sentiment that existed in the North and in D.C. at the time, I would imagine. Uh, so take us forward. Yeah, uh, it, it, uh, you're right. It wasn't. <laughs> um, there was, uh, people were, uh, people were like really mad. <laughs> so um, you go from, from that and this Wilmot proviso, like Justin said, it's come up. It goes up almost every year, and presidents get behind, you know, and they're like, well, "I am not, I am not going to be the guy to sign this shit. No way. Uh, I don't care what you guys do, but you have to kill it fast." Um, I'm actually looking at it. they. They tried to tag it on to like three. Uh, it tra- They tried to tag it on to three separate. Uh, forms of legislation that were like things that needed to pass. Yes. <laughs> and it like would, a lot of it money. Would, yeah, a lot. it would get, it would get through the house. It would get to the Senate and the Senate, the Senate would say, no, we're not going to do that. They would remove that from, they would remove the Wilmot uh, <laughs> provision from the bill and then send it back to the house and say, we approve it on these terms. Are you going to, are you going to approve it too? <laughs> like they, so they would, they would exclusively take this out and say, nope, we'll do everything else, but we're not doing that. Like quit, doing tag, that. quit adding it on there. Right. And they would do it up until the minute of like, you know, it, you know, it's, it's the 11th hour and they, and they wait to send it back to, till like they have no, if they don't 
get it done now. They're going to have to wait till next session and start all over. So they're like, so then the house scrambles and says, okay, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a big, uh, what did they call it? The $2 million bill or so it was something like that. And the president, that's what the president it was basically, it, it was basically what was going to, um, what was going to end the, the Mexican war, uh, the yeah. American Mexican war, like the, this was going to be like the, the buyout and put an end to the Mexican American war. Like we draw the lines, we stop fighting, we give Mexico all this money and they can go fuck off and we can just, you know, do, we can do our thing with our territory. Uh, so like, this is a, these are serious, uh, these are serious bills that are getting pet or that are going through <laughs> to, to try to put an end to a, a major American conflict and they're trying to tag this provision in there and, and it just keeps getting kicked back out. Like talk right. about, talk about politics, right? Like when you read, when you read these few sessions, you know, that, and the going back and forth and, and uh, it's, it's funny because it, it hasn't changed. It's the exact, it's the exact same thing we see today. <laughs> same games, same everything. Right. It is very, it is very interesting the way, uh, like, like this provision is getting kicked around, like the, uh, all the family, the family leave thing for. Yeah. Uh, family care leave. act or whatever. Yeah. 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 Like they keep trying to tag it in and it just keeps getting kicked back out and it's not even on partisan lines. Like <laughs> it's getting kicked back out because there are a lot of people who like, it just doesn't have the support. It gets through the house and can't get through the Senate. Uh, so it's yeah, it is kind of interesting to look at look at some of the uh, comparisons of of our uh, history and and how these compromises tend to get played out. Right, I, I agree. So you end up with uh, okay. So then my next big one, is, or the next big one on my timeline, is uh, this thing called popular sovereignty. So okay. Um, Lewis Cass of Michigan, um, pretty center of the line dude. Uh, he comes up with the idea that hey, we are a nation of a representative body. You know, like we we have representatives to represent the people. And the people elect those people. So the state in which people live. That is what should determine what their state is like. Period. Whether it's slave, whether it's free, this is pop. This is this is. It's up to them. It's not up to the federal government because the federal government doesn't really have the power to tell the states what to do. And there's a lot of people that like this. And there's a lot of people that don't like this. And popular sovereignty, you would think, I would think, would be the ultimate decider but it can't be because what if more states don't want sleep or what if more states want sleep we cannot allow the states to decide and fuck up this balance that we have worked so hard to maintain <laughs> and and when you <laughs> and it's like Man, Lewis Gass really got a bad got a bad rep for this, and and looking at it, it's like, well, that would make sense. That's what we want, right? Like that's what like if if that could just happen in our lifetime, I would be so thrilled. 
if if Louisiana could just run Louisiana the way Louisiana runs wants to be run, and all the money that Louisiana steals can just at least stay in Louisiana, that would that would be incredible. And he was absolutely vilified for suggesting that people who live in a particular boundary don't get to rep they you know they they should be able to decide for themselves and so that's that's really interesting because this is kind of see looking at looking at history i really think this is the period of history that kicked off where we are today up to this up to this point it was much more uh jeffersonian federalist type of government and as you get to this this point in history it starts becoming much more of a nationalist idea and much less of a uh individual state Mm -hmm. idea and and that's because i it, it probably is because of south carolina and the nullification efforts uh when those tax the the taxes were implemented in uh, 1828 and uh, you know up to the compromises of 32 and 33 it was that the federal government realized oh shit we can't just run out here and browbeat whatever we want into all of these states they're going to do their own thing Uh, and so you start to see that shift of the government that it, it becomes much more, much more of the the thing that we have today, and much less of the thing that it had been founded as, and kind of, you know, up to the Compromise of eighteen twenty of keeping the union together in that it's a a group of individual states working together. Now it's a country where all of the individual states have to do what we say. And that's kind of the this uh, like we're hitting that fucked up part of history that uh, pisses pisses most people who are uh, who are kind of of the Jeffersonian Tenth Amendment uh, you know the the Federalist idea uh, we're hitting that point of history that it all gets fucked up uh, and and there is no going back after this like this this is where this this is what turns it into what we live in today unfortunately. Absolutely, which is why I thought it was such an interesting thing to talk about in the middle of, you know, COVID and and uh, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna not say COVID, you know, correctly, so um, we're safe. Um, but you, but you know, like uh, it, that, this is this is this is what we're talking about. This is all we really, of course. If we could all live in Ancapistan, that would be really cool. But if we could just have popular sovereignty, that's a step. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, and so to me, popular sovereignty doesn't even, it doesn't even stop it. And I don't think that Lewis Cass meant for it to stop at slavery, you know, period. Um, so that's the thing that I, you know, if I could, if I could, of all these pieces of legislation and and speeches and, you know, provisos, that would be the one that I wish that, you know, we could, we could go back to that, you know, we could go to that idea of anything. Um, Because from here, because the federal government really doesn't like that part. 
they really, really don't like that part. And like you said, Federalists are mad. Uh, abolitionists are mad. Uh, super, you know, aristocrats in the South are like, you know, well, we can't allow, you know, what if those crazy Californians, they don't want slavery? Well, we can't. We have worked way too hard to maintain what we have. And they right. can't mess up. So, and because that's what comes up next is the the compromise of eighteen fifty. Because they what they end up deciding is uh, with the the Wilmot uh, provision is they just extend the Mason Dixon line all the way across the country, which splits California in half basically. And so what they end up deciding with the uh, the compromise of eighteen fifty is like the northern half of California will be a, a free state or a, you know the free portion of the state. And the southern part of California will be the free or will be the you know slave part of the state. But Mexico had so California and that part of you know that part of California was what we got from Mexico when all of that came to a came to an end. Mexico had already uh, for forbade slavery. So allowing the southern half of California to be the slave part of California was a hollow promise because there, it was never going to be like it, it was already, uh, it was already culturally and historically free. Uh, so, so see, you wanted to talk about compromise in modern era and how it will work today. And I think the compromise of 1850 could be, the best way to look at it because it was a compromise on its face, but in the end it was very one-sided and then that's the way anything that would happen in today's like, I'll let you, I'll let you talk, but uh, uh, that's like, that's where I'm kind of landing on the idea of compromise, uh, especially where government is involved. Yeah, uh, I I think so too. Um, I, 1850 is the hammer. 1850 is the hammer that broke it up. And like you said, they they can they can flower it and church it up however they want, but it's uh, one sided. And they knew what they were doing. And again, I think the the South at that point knew, like you said, that they had been betrayed. That. As they are, talk about, you know, like accepting us for who we are. Uh, the North did not want to accept them for who they are. The agrarian, I mean, and we can get into all the what ifs about slavery and then it was a dying institution and da, 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 da. But it was still going on and they were still using slaves in their agrarian culture. And the North just could not, just could not. Accept it. And and honestly, this all goes back to the fact that the North was then somehow competing economically with the South. And that's the part of all this that I never really like if you were all about this federal system and this and this big thing, why were you competing against your own people? And that part always always stuck you know if you go back to the beginning this is all industrialization of the north 
Uh, it's because you can't grow shit, you know? And so then they got, and then they got mad because they can't grow shit. And so then they started to build stuff and that's cool. But like, why would you, why would you hurt, you know? And I just can't, you can't convince me it's some type of moral, you know, oh, well, because slavery is bad. Well, you know what? Not getting vaccinated is bad. Right? I mean, it's the same shit. It's the same shit. And like, but it's not really about getting vaccinated, is it? Because it's really. <laughs> go ahead. No, uh, you're right. Go. Keep going. Yeah, it's uh, it's not. And it's and before it was about, you know, if you were caught, if your slave, God bless Jesus Christ is so stupid. If your slave was caught in the north, then they had to be returned to you. Again, that is so stupid. Um, but like that's your property, right? That's the whole justification because that's your property. You paid for it. You need your property returned to you. Okay. Well, now it's not even it's not about your property anymore. It's about your body autonomy. So how do you like you just want popular sovereignty over your body? And if they're not willing to give us that much leeway, then you're right. There any compromise that could come from today would only be one-sided. And it would be in the eyes of the moral beholder. Because if you are immoral, you don't get to be the beholder. And they decide who's moral and who's not. So there's, we're going to get in trouble for comparing uh, COVID vaccination to slavery. But there are some, <laughs> there, are, there are close parallels in the ramp up to the Civil War and what we currently see today. And for instance, in for for their lead up to the Civil War, the slave the slave trade and slave states were a they were a constant sticking point that got brought up. But the thing that was actually important to this was the competition that you talked about, was the tariffs that we talked about. Like, like the slave stuff, that could that, like you said, that was a dying institution. Like that probably was going to be gone in 50 years anyway. The tariffs and the constant, for lack of a better way of putting it, like pressure that the North was putting on the Southern states and like actively penalizing those states for no other reason than the fact that they were successful when the North was struggling is what, and, and it's the same thing that we see today when you look at any electoral map of, you know, the reds and the blues, you see that these large population centers are, tend to be more progressive. So these large population centers were exclusively in the North at this point in time. Like you didn't have that in the South at all. Right. Uh, like now you have, you know, you have Atlanta and you have like the big cities in Texas and Florida. That, and, yeah. Right, right, right. But that didn't exist in the 1800s, uh, you know, especially in the early to mid 1800s. So it was a much more spread out uh, 
portion of the country, and they did not have the representation in the House because the, all of the all of the population hubs were in the north. So, so all of this pressure is coming from like the you know the main gigantic voting blocks, and because that's where the people are and that's where the voices are, that's what the federal government is going to go with. And if that part of the country is saying we need you to do this because they're doing better than us and we can't be competitive and we need to be able to make money too. Those are the loudest and the largest voting blocks that they've got to have their bellies scratched. So the federal government then in turn enacts these tariffs and fuck the handful of people in the South. We've got to take care of the large population centers that are going to scream and throw us out of office. So you know, when you draw the comparison, because slavery was always used as this thing, it's the emotional thing, but, but you have the, the, you know, the hard, uh, actual thing in the money side of things. So now we fast forward to 2019, 2020, 2021, and the vaccine is the thing, but how much of that is the fact that these blue states that are still locked down are really fucking struggling and are just hemorrhaging human beings, like people leaving, companies leaving, like everything that they need to be successful as states are abandoning them because of this stuff. Whereas the states that are a lot looser on that type of thing are growing are actually thriving. So how much of what we see now in the vaccine is a lot like the ideas of slavery in the 1850s, that the vaccine is that hot button topic that everybody can get real worked up on one way or the other. And it's for, you know, it's for safety, it's for health, it's for whatever, taking care of each other, like doing the right thing from a humanitarian perspective, while the actual reasoning behind trying to push all that stuff, especially at a federal level and make it a mandated thing for everybody, has nothing to do with your health, safety, any of that stuff. It's about getting everybody on the same page. It's about enforcing compliance and getting the entire country to behave and do what they're supposed to so that all these big giant population hubs like New York, like LA, can not have to go through all this stuff anymore and can just be as successful as everybody else who won't get on board because right now everybody's saying fuck this and getting out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, I went off. But no, no, but you're you're exactly right. That's my point. That's that in thinking of this and kind of working it out. And you and I both share an affinity for uh, Civil War history. So I knew you'd be the guy to talk to. But like, I really was just like, man, this is this is so uh parallel again i know i'm in trouble because i'm comparing i know but i'm just saying the use of both things um particularly by the left back then and the left now um are 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 it's all emotion based and it's all to make you feel like a better person or to make you feel like a shit person and emotions don't um, they don't run the country or pay your bills. 
So why do we give so much credence to how you, you know, how you feel? Uh, and, and, and how, you know, it's like when you see parents with, you know, kids and masks and stuff. And it's like, your kid doesn't need that. You know, you know that, you know that you're just doing it because it makes you feel better. And it, and, and then you don't get weird stares because God forbid weird stares, you know, I, I, you know, but, but now you're sacrificing children for the sake of feeling better about yourself. I mean, I, 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 that's the part that, you know, and that's why, I mean, you hear me say it all the time and I, I do like, you know, I don't know what it's going to take because they, they're complying with the kids, right? I thought that the children would be like the thing where they said, you know what? No, we can't, we can't go through this. Now you're going to have five to 11 year olds uh, taking something, uh, mRNA therapy in their little bodies. And you don't know at all what can happen with this thing. Um, and you just cross your fingers because you don't want weird stares. So in modern times, in pandemic America, what is the compromise? Because I think we are pretty close. Uh, as you've seen, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, come out over the last several days, week and a half or so. Um, Biden says the mandate goes into effect January 4th, period. Fifth Circuit of Texas, Louisiana, what is it? Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, and another state down there. Maybe it's either Oklahoma or Mississippi, but I can't remember which of the two. I can't remember. So anyway, Fifth Circuit says, nope, puts a stay on it, which I think, I think that judge, uh, I've read somewhere he's like the best judge on the planet as far as like basically stepping in and putting a stay on any federal bullshit. Uh, so he's put a stay on it. And on top of that, there are 26 total states that have filed suit against the Biden administration and the federal government against these vaccine mandates and not all red states like they're. Yeah, yeah, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like that's an important, right? That's an important no, part to look at. Is it's not exclusively red states. Like there are also blue states involved in that, as well as a lot of private private businesses and large public businesses and some other. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are some like public or uh, yeah, government public sector unions that are involved in some of these lawsuits as well. So like government employees who are being required to get this vaccination for their government job, uh, their unions are also stepping in and joining in the fight against this and filing suit against the federal government. So, and then, and then you have Biden coming out saying uh, to push forward that, that the state doesn't actually mean anything. And to, yeah. and, and that like, that takes it a step too far for me. I, like, I posted on Twitter this morning. Like that's a that's a, an explicit line from the Declaration of Independence that King George had was not allowing the the judges and the courts to to uh, rule. To be, yeah, to be judicious. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. King George was superseding the the judiciary that had been established, 
And that's what fucking Joe Biden's doing right now. By saying that you ignore the Fifth Circuit and the state, he is superseding the judiciary that has been established for this country. That is tyrant fucking behavior, and tyrants should be removed. Period. Exactly. So, so, okay. Um, so let me calm down. It's okay. It's okay. Um, that also, but that leads me to like the last final, like the final nail in the coffin for all of these compromises was um, after popular sovereignty, when it was, you know, suggested maybe the state should be allowed to um, pick for themselves how they want to be governed and how they want to operate. Um, there was a Supreme Court decision. I won't go into the whole nuts and bolts of it, but uh, what came down out of that was the necessary and proper clause. <laughs> so we went from, hey guys, maybe we should allow the states to, you know, pick how they want to go about this, to, you know what, actually the federal government completely supersedes the states and we can do whatever the hell we want. And now we are here with a mandate that Joe Biden just said that the courts don't matter, which the, which the federal court system said that the state government doesn't matter really if the federal government wants to do the opposite of what it wants, because it's just going to do it. And now here we are. I'm just saying, I'm just saying there's a lot to be learned. There is a lot to be learned from our forefathers um, because no, after this, it is not the same. The necessary and proper clause, I think, is what, you know, that was, oh, okay. So, like, even if we voted a certain way, like, we can't, uh, we don't get that because somewhere in the Constitution, you decided to uh, um, to read it and to infer that the federal government has these implied powers, one of which being it supersedes the state government. Which is a clear violation of the 10th Amendment and, and, and the way that the Constitution was entirely construed. And that's why the... See, I wonder how many conservatives are sitting around like banking on three Trump appointees on the Supreme Court are going to be their savior. And they're going to come in and because the Supreme Court is always leans progressive, regardless of how conservative the justices are, it's always going to go that direction. So so what's the compromise here? Like if we we're doing this on the idea that there could possibly be or could there possibly be a compromise in modern America that would kick this can down the road for another, I mean, what they get? Uh, 30, 35 years out of, if you go from the original, like mm-hmm. the, the compromise of 1820 to mm-hmm. full on civil war, like what's the compromise? What kicks the can down the road for the next 30 to 35 years that this whole thing doesn't break up? Because I mean, New Hampshire, Florida, Texas, Probably South Carolina. I mean, they're always the drop of a dime away from ready to secede anyway. Uh, like, what is the the next compromise that that gets us to whenever it does actually happen? Because I don't know that there is one, is the thing. Like, 
No, there is not one. And I really racked my brain over this weekend and like really thinking about this. Like I don't because and I'm trying to think about it from before before the red pills, which I was very young when I was red pilled. You know that. And so I am trying to think about it from a person who believes in the federal government, who believes that we should have this Leviathan. And it's hard for me because I don't. I don't like for me, the compromise, please just let me leave peacefully. Please just let me leave. Like I, I'm I'm not asking for anything from you. And I may fall flat on my face the first few years, but like I would just like to leave. Peacefully. That 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 to fall flat on your face. I think if these progressive states, these blue states actually had any level of confidence that what they propose works long-term, keeping the country together, that if they actually believed that these poor, redneck, ass-backwards red states could not survive without the United States, they should just fucking do it. Cut them loose. Let them go and watch them flail and fail and come crawling back, begging to come back to be part of the union. They would never do it because they know that that would not be the case. Like, you don't, you don't kick somebody out thinking that they'll, you know, come crawling back. Right. You already know they're not coming back. Or or if right. you like we're not we're we we got it. We'll figure it out, you know? And like we as far as if we're talking regionally as southern people are resilient. Um I live in a All place right, so that, I, I've, I've talked about it a, a couple times over uh the past couple of weeks with an episode of mine and and episode of deal with Tommy. But like my ex and I split up a few times before we actually got divorced. Well, she never was interested in getting divorced because she relied on me for literally everything. (laughs) That's how this whole thing kind of plays out is that uh, the federal government doesn't mind talking about it, but they're not going to actually like encourage anybody to leave. They're not going to actually push for that divorce because at the end of the day, they know where their bread is buttered and uh, the people in charge are not completely morons. Like they're, you're not going to walk out and shoot the cash cow in the head. So, you know, they want to string it along. Uh, they're not very good at, 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 you know, pretending that they do, but they do want to string it along. So they're not going to let any of these red states, especially the Floridas, the Texases, uh, Georgia, you know, Georgia, South Carolina, like Louisiana. I mean, there's a may, you know, there is a major major export hub there in in Louisiana, you know. They're not going to let these states go away because they know where their bread is buttered. And for as uh for as big as New York and California and all these states are, they're also like California could probably exist on its own, but but how much of what California does uh as an agricultural state, like, yes, they create, they produce a lot of the produce 
that we use throughout the United States. That's I will never deny that. But the things that make the government, like that make money, the the large bulk commodity uh, products, corn, beans, wheat, milo, like barley, that comes from these red states that want to say, hey, fuck this, we're out. So so they don't want to actually allow that to happen because like in like like the reason that the Civil War had to be fought, the North could not allow the South to leave because the South was the cash cow and you don't just let it wander off. You have to go fucking get it. They couldn't allow it to happen. So, so to cut to the chase, there is no compromise because right. There, right. Uh, exactly. And that's been my thought the whole time. I mean, I've, I've, I've wanted to be divorced for a long time, but like you said, it's the people that can't live without you, like monetarily, you know, financially, whatever, are the ones that are like, no, please don't go. I know I've been a real asshole, but please don't go. Right. Um, you know, and, 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 and for as much as the individual, uh, like psychotic progressives on uh, social media act like, yeah, just let them go. It'll be fun. The people who actually are in charge and who actually know how things work, they'll never let it happen. So I agree. I agree. After thinking about it a lot and reading a lot, um, I don't think there is a compromise. I think the only, the only the only step forward is, you know, let Texas be Texas. And then if Texas would like to take on some land this time, I would love that. Uh, they can surely take this land. We'll, we'll take to Sienna. Great. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I I really appreciate you working this out with me because, yeah, I, I, I don't see a compromise and I think it's just going to get worse and um, I always joke that January 6th was the caning of Sumner um, because it kind of, I felt like it, I felt like the caning of Sumner was like a real, it, for those of you who don't know, there was a guy, doesn't matter, won't get into it, but a guy actually did die in the house because he was caned by the cousin of a guy he talked bad about. Like literally, basically this guy, Sumner, uh, called, called him a pussy. And then this guy just took this guy's cousin took his cane and beat him almost to death. I don't think he died, but he almost to death. And and he was guarded by his friends with guns who told the rest of the house, you stay the fuck out. You let them handle their business. Like, like, is that what it's going to come to? Like, are we going to have is someone going to have to be physically beat? And which is against everything we believe in we don't we don't want physical violence we don't you know I, I always hear that you know you just want a war i don't want to ever shoot my gun for i know i know justin i know and it, and look we could handle it if we had to go to war we could handle it and i know we could and i'm not afraid it's a difference i'm not afraid of war um i don't want it but i'm not afraid of it and like i said the south we've done this before i have always said I have no interest in fighting or anything like that. I have maintained being a peaceful individual for the better part of my adult life, and I would like to stay that way. Uh, 
even if it goes against my baser instincts. But if violence is going to come, I would like for it to come while I am in fighting shape. And I'd like for my kids to not have to participate. Agreed. Agreed. The sooner the better. That's why I'm always advocating, you know, like I don't want children to die. Um, and this is going to probably get me in a lot of trouble. But like, I don't know, like, do 10 kids have to die from this vaccine for people to realize that they've been betrayed? Like, is that what it's going to take? Like, at, at what point, you know, the, it, it wasn't the masks, it wasn't the mandates, it wasn't the killing of the economy, it wasn't the taking of your business, it wasn't uh, canceling school for two years for your children, it wasn't any of that. So, at, like, at what point? Or do people realize, and and you know what, at this point, I'm not even talking about people in blue state. I don't even care about them. They can stay in their little blue-pilled world. That's fine. They can stay all plugged in. It's warm. It's comfy. They know it. That's fine. I'm, I, I want to be unplugged. I do not want to be in the matrix. I don't like it. And, you know, I, at what point are other people going to say, you know what, we should probably, you know, in red states, here, in Texas, in Florida, you know, stop being compliant. Stop, stop being compliant. Um, you know, at what point do you say, you know what? No. At what point do you become South Carolina? And you just say, no, no. And it's coming. And I think it's coming quicker. And every day as we inch closer to January 4th, I think people are going to get, you know, I think it's coming to a boiling point. So I'm with you. There is no compromise. The only compromise is to let me leave peacefully or just let me leave one way or the other. And you don't want the other way. You don't want. No, nobody does. You, you got a whole, you got generations of people who have been raised waiting for the day, waiting for the day that, you know, that Yankee jumps over that fence. You know, I dare you. So I, uh, I agree. And like I said, I'm really appreciative of your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, please. Please plug away. I know you're on Twitter. You've got the podcast. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, at jcamp1521 on Twitter. Uh, fact check this podcast. And then um, I've got that on YouTube, Rumble, uh, Odyssey, BitChute, Locals, uh, anywhere that you, any podcatcher. And then also all the shows and stuff I do work for. If you got video work or social media stuff you want done, hit me up. Uh, it's. I don't actually use it, but you can send an email to factcheckmediaproductions at gmail.com. And uh, I can, I can, if I actually see an email come through, I will respond to it, but I just don't get very many because I don't promote it. But I actually do have an actual like business uh, page for all of this stuff that I do. So maybe I should start using that at some point. You should, because you're definitely the best in the business of this. Um, you know, like I said before, you if you listen to a Liberty podcast, there is almost a hundred percent chance that Justin is behind it, and he is what makes it awesome. So uh, please go follow him. Go listen to Fact Check. This I love his podcast. I love his show. Um, he's got some new episodes coming out. You were on with who last week? Uh, last week I was with Tommy Sammons on Year Zero, and then on Monday I had Pete Quinones, and then. Uh, I've got a, got a couple other uh, pretty good ones coming out. And then I'll also be helping Johnny do uh, peddling, or, uh, yeah, peddling fiction here in the next couple weeks, too. So that'll be a lot of fun. So you guys are going to be hearing a lot more from Justin, which is awesome. We want to hear more from Justin. So, uh, 
But again, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, um, and we will talk to you, I'm sure, very, very soon. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs>